Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning, it's Annie with you for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. It's raining outside, it's nice and cool. Nice to have your company. Today we've got an interview Lalitha Chalaya has posted with Farooq Tariq. General Secretary of the Pakistani Workers' Party, who's been visiting Australia. Marcus Harrington from Rank and File has uh, posted a report. Uh, He joined the uh, Eureka Memorial on December the 3rd. Uh, If you uh, hadn't realised already, the hot news is that they burnt the effigy of the head of ASIO. Mr Duncan took the gong. Uh, Kevin Healy is going to keep us abreast with the week that was. And lastly, we catch up with Andrew Kelly from the East-West Picket to go through the coals of the recent Victorian election. We'll get on immediately with uh, Lali's uh, chat with Farooq Tariq from Pakistan. Today we are interviewing Farooq Tariq, who is visiting Australia from Pakistan. He is the General Secretary of the Awami Workers' Party, which was formed in 2012. Welcome to 3CR, Farooq. Thank you. I just thought we could start with uh, Pakistan and what's happening there. The history of Pakistan is really interesting. From the very beginning, it has been a tumultuous relationship with India. And then on the rulers in, in Pakistan, we've had 34 out of 65 uh, governments that are under the, were with, under the military rule. Um, I wonder if you could explore the reason for that sort of dynamic in Pakistan. This time, this is uh, a Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz government in office for the last two years. There was general elections in 2013, and uh, it was held after five years of uh, Pakistan People's Party government which was uh, a party of Benazir Bhutto and her father, Zulfkarli Bhutto. And she was assassinated in end of uh, in December 2007 by religious fundamentalists. And People's Party took over power after 10 years of multi-dictatorship of General Musharraf. And uh, 34 years of Pakistan's uh, 66 years of independence have been uh, under the rule of the military. And the reason why military is taking over again and again is the uh, weak uh, nature of Pakistani 
civilian governments and their inability to do something and also the enmity with india has been used by military to enhance their military expenditures and one of the major expenditure of the budget is the military and uh, so uh, democratic forces were very weak they were not able to compete as the indian were able to do it and also the military rulers uh, from the very beginning uh, have this an idea that civilian can't rule the the country it's us who are more disciplined who have power who have guns and we can do something good for pakistan and uh, so the result was that after 1947 when pakistan and india got independence from british the first general elections in pakistan took place in 1970 while in india it just took place a year later and that was one of the reason uh, that delay of the democratic process and there were several uh, change of the civilian government like few governments were only for few months and uh, it was also the sheer greed of the some of the politicians uh, who were civilian who paved the way for the military rule in pakistan would you say that the level of literacy in pakistan would have contributed to this phenomena i think that uh, has to do something because uh, at this time less than 2% of the total budget is spent on education and the result is only 35% population can be termed as literate and uh, majority of the women and uh, youth are have not gone to school or ha- if they have gone to school they have not completed their first 5 years of education and it was always at the cost of the education that military and repayment of the foreign loans were given priority and social sector was always ignored and instead in the last 40 years religious schools has come in the forefront like madrasas so instead of strengthening the public sector education several governments including the military governments have uh, strengthened uh, the informal sector like madrasas in education and the result is uh, an absolute spread of religious fundamentalism and also majority unlike uh, sri lanka where over 90% literacy rate is there but i would say it's not just literacy is more to do with the economic situation more to do with the political abilities of the different governments and also the strengthening of the trade union and social movements that can really be a hurdle in the path of the military generals intention to take over so it's a combination of uh, factors why military uh, had been in power but fortunately for last 7 years uh, military is not in power now One of the features in Pakistan is that it has got nuclear weapons. That has been seen as a point of danger for many countries in the area and India uses that as a leverage to want to arm itself or is not saying openly it, it's going to do that. How is it that a country like Pakistan was able to get nuclear energy while it can't even organize its population to high literacy levels? This is a great tragedy that Pakistan has an uh, Uh, not much to eat pakistani have uh, no health facilities no education uh, social sector is absolute weak no human development no infrastructure development but they have bloody nuclearization in pakistan and this was like in competition with the indians so when indians went into testing the weapons uh, on 12th of may uh, 1998 
Pakistan just responded in two weeks on 28th of May 1998 to go for uh, testing the nuclearization. But they have been preparing for that since 1974 when Bhutto was in power. And Bhutto said a very famous quotation of his, we will eat grass, but we will build nuclear weapon. And nuclear weapon was presented as, as a defense for Pakistan as uh, a deterrent Pakistan. But this has not been the case. Despite nuclear weapons, Pakistan and India has gone to war at Kargil in 1999. So uh, what's the use of a weapon which you cannot use? You are even worried to defend it because there is a danger of uh, religious fundamentalist uh, onslaught to Islamabad. And uh, Pakistani government has to ensure all the time Americans and other donors, no, no, our weapons are in safe hand. But what a wastage that in India over 70% of the population earns less than $2. So is the condition of Pakistan, where Pakistan is also on the same level. And rulers have built uh, the nuclear weapon. Our uh, Awami Workers Party is totally opposed to nuclearization of the whole uh, subcontinent and we want both countries to, to freeze their uh, nuclear weapon and go for a negotiation for peace and democracy. One of the things you mentioned is the religious fundamentalism. I wonder if we could explore that a little bit more because at the last election in India, Modi came to power. Narendra Modi is the leader of the BJP, a Hindutva um, fundamentalist. So you have said that um, religious fundamentalism is actually taking over some parts of the world and you even describe it as fascist movements, religious fascist movements. So I'm just wondering if you could explore that sort of influence, especially in the Southeast Asia region, Indonesia, and you, you also mentioned Mindanao in South Philippines. I'm just wondering if you could explain why you, you think in, along those lines and how to explain that spread. Let me say first that we differentiate between religion and religious fundamentalism. We are for the religious freedom for everyone who want, who want to have a belief and also for those who do, do not want to have belief. But religious fundamentalism is, is taking over of the state and uh, uh, ruling the population according to their own set of rules. And religious fundamentalists are not like one country-based uh, phenomena. It is an interna- they are internationalist. They want the whole world and Islamic world. If we talk about Muslim religious fundamentalism, uh, they don't talk just taking over of Pakistan or Afghanistan uh, like Daesh, uh, they say Islamic State. Uh, so they are uh, for a Islamic world. So they are linking with themselves. But when we say religious fundamentalists are like the new fascists, so they have all the trends what fascists did in their own time. Now they are attacking the most weaker section of the society like women and religious minorities. Then uh, they are destroying the women's schools. They are blasting the schools. Uh, they are uh, eliminating the opponents by physical means. Uh, they are uh, carrying out suicidal attacks in ordinary uh, uh, markets. Uh, they are... Uh, attacking the state institutions and they say we don't want democracy we want khilafat and that means an islamic rule of one person where you have to obey you don't question 
you just listen and do what they want to they want to say so this is like all the trends of the fascist uh, of the past although this is not the fascist who are like a mass base as hitler was or mussolini was they are going to towards that achievement but they are not yet a mass base in some of the islamic countries but wherever they are a mass base they have taken over and they have ensured that their rule is been followed blindly by everyone living in that area and uh, that's where we see the killings of shia we see the killings of kurds we see the killings of uh, religious minorities women has to stay at home and they want to do according to their own set of belief uh, which uh, is like recalling what a golden age of islam was at one time and uh, giving examples of that we want to bring the khilafat of hazrat umar where there was a real justice and they say that killing is necessary to have a rule uh, without killing you can't go the, uh, very far and that's why you see killings of uh, people uh, lining in in one queue and then just killing killing them in public and so on and so we say these uh, islamic religious fundamentalist are one of the greatest danger the democratic and progressive forces are facing but the issue is how to compete with them there is a military solution which was offered by the americans in the shape of nato occupation of afghanistan and we saw that they took over afghanistan but religious fundamentalism was not eliminated religious fundamentalism was not that strong in 2001 in december when they took over as they are in december 2014 so let's see if a military solution has worked practically for the elimination of these ideas it has not it has spread to other areas you only heard in 2004 there was drone attacks in pakistan pakistan became like a laboratory for testing the drones now drone industry is booming so it's been sold on a very high price and it's been carried out in different african and asian countries so we see that uh, american uh, multinational companies are using islamic fundamentalism to gain more profits but the ideological war which is needed against fundamentalist where you have to have a united front of the progressive forces and delinking of the state with religious fundamentalism that we don't see in many of the muslim countries the next area i want to explore is the state of the left in pakistan and that i want to include not just the, the opposition or left parties but i also want to look at the trade unions and the social movements what is their state at the moment in pakistan because we never hear about any of that once pakistan people's party of bhutto was seen as a left party but that party is now gone it has moved towards right it has uh, carried out most vicious attacks against working class uh, it has sided with the americans and uh, with the multinational and it has uh, left what it was at one time then small left groups had emerged and in the past few years uh, it has been difficult for the left to grow in pakistan because right is taking over and some of those former left has become right and uh, the left is not that strong and the trade unions ha- are bearing the most cost of this shift towards the right so we see in the whole indian subcontinent 
there is a general shift towards the right uh, modi has taken over in uh, india and since he's in power uh, there's more border clashes with pakistan and we see rajpaksa is moving dictatorial nature we see also in bangladesh uh, jamaat islami trying to call general strikes against the trials of the war criminals and they are presenting their war criminals as uh, religious people so it's not an attack on religion but against those who carried out some uh, criminal activities during 1971 when uh, west pakistan was ruling east pakistan so we see a general shift in the all sark countries and this uh, south asian uh, alliance for uh, regional cooperation uh, association of regional cooperation eight countries uh, we see in all the, all the countries left is marginalized trade union is marginalized peasant movements have been uh, suppressed but in that circumstances still there are groups who are working but it's in a weak condition it's not like booming left in these countries in pakistan we are trying uh, our best to revive the best traditions of the left by forming trade unions by strengthening trade unions by helping uh, social movements and by helping the peasant movements but it is taking time and we are like swimming against the stream at this time the position of pakistan is very um, interesting because it is being courted by russia france and you have china and you've got india on the side so you've got all these countries seemingly influencing pakistan in one way or the other particularly the us and china what is actually happening in that conglomerate of countries who want to just tell pakistan what to do how do the people and the government there feel about it well last 40 years we have seen very interesting developments in that region uh, russian intervened uh, soviet union intervened in 1979 and then american decided to help the religious fundamentalist so because of the cold war and enmity of the soviet union and the americans pakistan and afghanistan became the victims and uh, laboratory for the both countries uh, in pakistan americans helped the religious fundamentalist by giving them weapons uh, opening madrasas and uh, supporting ziaul haq dictatorship a military dictatorship got all that help during that period so 80s we saw a process of islamization because of their intervention and russia after russians withdraw from afghanistan uh, religious fundamentalists became more strengthened in uh, afghanistan and in pakistan so we saw a change of the government in 1992 in afghanistan and earlier iran was uh, taken over by shia revolution and that was uh, also in 79 so we we saw two religious states on the border of pakistan and iran a shia iran and uh, a wahhabi um, afghanistan under taliban and mujahideen from 1992 till 2001 so we saw that uh, process uh, also developing in pakistan and this was the time when china was also booming Uh, progressing every year now china has become a major player in the region china is playing like a new imperialist power in that region and most of pakistani natural resources are taken over most of the construction work is done by the chinese our port is been taken over gwadar port 
is taken over by Chinese. They are building new highways and motorways, putting a lot of resources into Pakistan. They even managed to send all their coal-based energy production to Pakistan. They banned in China and they are selling it to Pakistan. So that sort of uh, attitude they had towards the climate change. And Pakistan has seen some of the worst incidents of climate change. In 2005, there was an earthquake killing over 100,000. Then in 2010, there was a flood which covered Pakistan like one-fifth of Pakistan was underwater. And so the whole uh, major players like India, China, America, they are uh, in Pakistan. And uh, Indians at this time are also having a lot of strength. And I think Modi want that role to play in the Indian subcontinent. But Pakistan, because of the traditional enmity with India, is not yet in that game. But Modi has uh, taken over most of Nepal. Uh, it, it has good influence in uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, also in Bangladesh, they are intervening. And Bhutan is already under their control. And uh, Afghanistan has the best uh, Indian investment in the past uh, few years. So Pakistan is like uh, encircled on one side India who is giving help to all the neighbors and then China directly intervening in Pakistan by giving support and Americans are giving all sort of military aid and some of IMF and World Bank are giving extraordinary loans. So Pakistan has become like uh, a playing game for all these uh, major powers of the area. The other question is Kashmir. That's a big, um, well, long history in Kashmir between um, the India and Pakistan nations claiming um, possession of the country, really, not even considering what the Kashmiri people really want. What is the situation there at this stage? Well, Kashmir is divided uh, by Pakistan and India. One part of Kashmir is occupied by Pakistan. Another part is occupied by India. And Kashmiri on both sides are fighting for national liberation, which they have not got. And uh, Indians are trying their best to keep their control intact by suppressing uh, most of the demonstration and uh, killing many Muslims and so on. But in Pakistan, it's uh, the total uh, sort of uh, dictation by the Pakistani government uh, to the so-called independent government of Kashmir in Pakistan. But Kashmir is a nation is an independent nation. Uh, it has all the right to be a liberated nation. And I think uh, Pakistan and India should uh, uh, move back from Kashmir and let the Kashmiri decide their own future rather than they are dictating themselves. Is Kashmir where Pakistan and India find their uh, justification to, uh, to increase the uh, defense budget? So Kashmir has become like a political football for both of them. And uh, this uh, uh, increase in the army expenditure meant less money for social development for both countries. And the South Asian uh, region like uh, India and Pakistan have like one-fifth of the poorer, poor of the world in this region. Over a billion population and most of them are poor. And they want to, they had a nuclear weapon, they want to have Kashmir. I don't know what they, what else they want to have uh, for themselves apart from a priority to change the lives of the millions who are waiting, uh, who are dying uh, an unnatural 
death because of uh, different uh, uh, illnesses and problems with the health and so on. I just wondered if you could give us a, a quick history of the Awami Workers Party, which you're the secretary of. No, Awami Workers Party is a result of merger of three political parties called Labour Party of Pakistan, uh, Workers Party of Pakistan and Awami Party of Pakistan. Uh, we were really marginalized by the rise of the right-wing forces. So we decided to merge. And these three parties were coming from different left traditions. So it was not just one tradition. But uh, because of the objective uh, difficulties, we decided to intervene consciously by uniting the left. For last two years, uh, we have been uh, discussing in different forms and shapes uh, how we can work together and so on. So this year, on 27th and 28th of September, we had held our first Congress and uh, a new leadership was elected. I was uh, re-elected as General Secretary of the party. It has brought some of the best element of the left into one platform. And the result is in last two months, we see upsurge in the trade unions. We see upsurge in the peasant movement. We had 5,000 peasants demanding land rights in Lahore on 25th of November, just before I left Pakistan. Uh, we saw in my presence in during Australia a reunification of the students under National Student Federation. And uh, we also saw a National Day of Action for the release of political prisoners. Uh, 26 political prisoners of our party are facing terrorist charges and they are political activists. And so there is a new sort of enthusiasm and many left activists who are not part of our party, many liberals, social democrats who are not part of any party, but they want us to do something. So Awami Workers Party is uh, like becoming a new party of the left which has caught the aspiration of many, although they have not joined, but they want this party to grow, to remain united, and we are doing a bit of in that sense, and we hope that during the next two years, if we are able to sustain, because left unity is one of the most difficult tasks for us. We were on the verge of collapse several times, but finally we said we will not split the party. We will remain in this party, despite all the disagreements. Still, we have disagreements in the party on many issues. But the aim to build a united party is even inspiring the Indian communists. And our example has been given in India several times now. Uh, how could Pakistani left be united? Because all the remnants of the Communist Party of Pakistan, all the Moist, all the Stalinists, all the Trotskyists, they are in one party now. And we have over now 6,000 members in Pakistan. 400 delegates got together in our Congress. And we have elected a committee which has nearly one-third women in the decision body-making uh, body. And we have some of the very known women activists as leaders of our party. So it's, uh, the words are getting around. But still we have very difficult objective conditions. We, a long way to go. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We've just been listening to uh, Farooq Tariq from uh, the uh, Pakistani Workers' Party in an interview with uh, Lali Chalila. Um, you may have heard that uh, uh, Morrison, the government uh, minister for uh, immigration, has uh, been able to pass his uh, latest raft of... Um, uh, re uh, refugee 
uh, legislation. It was the last uh, thing in the last sitting of Parliament, Federal Parliament, just before they all went off to have their breakfast, uh, their Christmas break. Uh, and uh, as they say, the sugar coating was that children would be no longer be in detention, and that uh, there will be workers' right work rights for uh, existent refugees in the community. However, there is um, quite a, a lot of concern coming out of the Refugee Council saying that, uh, in actual fact, there's a, it's a bluff in a sense that uh, children uh, on, um, will remain on Nauru. Uh, even though they may be released, they won't actually be able to leave the places that they're in. And uh, that while asylum seekers living in the community are desperate for work rights, Morrison's intention is that most of them won't get refugee status so that it's actually a bit of a ruse. The, um, but uh, the breaking news is that there's been a uh, hunger strike and uh, uh, many um, uh, four uh, refugees on Manus Island have sewn their lips together. There's about 100 asylum seekers and refugees on Manus Island who started a hunger strike on the December the 1st. Uh, they, their uh, strike started, as I said, on December the, the 1st. Three Pakistani men and one Afghani man were taken to IHMS after fainting yesterday. That's on the 3rd, uh, but refused treatment. Those who have sewn their lips include two Iranians, one Iraqi and one Lebanese man in Oscar compound. The hunger strikers complain about being treated like slaves by the officers. They say all their written complaints have been ignored. They say they often stay up all night in fear. There are 50 men to a room. The temperature gets up to 50 degrees. The bathrooms and toilets are filthy. The food is disgusting and they are forced to wait in long lines for it, one of the hunger strikers said. We are often called boat people by the officers and procrastination is one of their common acts here in all different situations to agitate us. When asked what the demands of the hunger strikers were, he said, everyone wants his freedom after 17 months and we want to be taken to a safe place from this bloody island. So it's a watching brief. Now we're moving on to rank and file. As I said, uh, young uh, Marcus Harrison Harrington went off to the uh, wonderful uh, commemorations down in uh, Ballarat uh, on December the 3rd. They started at 6 and apparently as uh, one of the uh, people who went there said on our death march, <laughs> carrying very long uh, and very high uh, flagpoles, they did the uh, stations of uh, Eureka. And as I said, Marcus was there. So we'll go to Marcus now. And welcome back to Community Radio 3CR 855 on the AM dial for another edition of Rank and File Radio. And I'm your presenter today, Marcus Harrington. On today's show, we are going to bring you some interviews and some highlights of Wednesday's Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion. It was a march that took place through the city of Ballarat on the very day, 160 years ago, the uh, massacre of the Eureka rebels took place. Visitors came to Ballarat from far and wide to commemorate the Eureka Rebellion and to keep the spirit of Eureka's story alive. And on Rank and File Radio, we're here at Bakery Hill, the scene where 12,000 miners in 160 years ago 
took the oath of allegiance to the Southern Cross and I'm joined uh, by Gary Dighton and you've made the trip from Interstate today. Yes, I have. I've uh, travelled from uh, uh, Queensland to be a part of the festivities. Well, it's not really festivities, but for the commemoration of this historic moment. OK, um, and what does Eureka mean to you? Oh, it means... Uh, part of Australian culture that's basically uh, you know, largely forgotten by state and federal governments um, and it means uh, uh, freedom it means some and democracy unfortunately unfortunately democracy does not exist in this country never has and uh, it, it means a lot to me as, as a person and from and you're from Queensland. It was in 1891 the Eureka flag was flown in the Shearer's strike in Barcaldean. So it's a, it's a national icon, the Eureka flag, that we stand under yeah. today. Well, I firmly believe that the Eureka stockade flag should be our national flag. But unfortunately, the British won again and had their way and uh, unfortunately had a short shelf life, only a few days. But ramifications still ring true today. Like... We swear by the Southern Cross to stand firmly by each other to fight to defend our rights and liberties. So that still, that motto still rings true today. And that's what I stand for. And that's what all Australians should stand for. On November the 29th, 1854, the Eureka flag was first raised at Bakery Hill in Ballarat at a monster meeting attended by 12,000 diggers. Each year at Bakery Hill in Ballarat, Australians who have uh, dedicated their life to activism and worked in that same spirit of the Eureka Rebellion are honoured on Bakery Hill on December the 3rd, Eureka Day. We'll now hear the award being given to Geelong Trades Hall Secretary and former CFMEU shop steward, Tim Gooden. I nominated Tim Gooden because uh, of his uh, uh, community leadership and uh, many of you may not know here, but not long ago, uh, there was a government in, that had great difficulty in building houses for the Indigenous people. And in 12 months, I don't think they built one. And with Tim's leadership and his call for volunteers, uh, they went to the uh, Northern or Central Australia uh, in, I think, January and February, in 40 and 50 degree heats, and built a house from the volunteers, uh, and the volunteers and the material, and they was built in a week. And that was one uh, uh, inspirational uh, example I can give you. The other is he's a champion of just causes, uh, particularly uh, workers and families in, in serious difficulties, and of course, not least, the, uh, his leadership in uh, Geelong in particular, in terms of the, uh, the refugees and their problems at this stage. So it's great pleasure. I'm pleased that the nomination has been accepted. And, uh, and we've got the oath. And 
We have about half a dozen high schools come through to Long Trace Hall for school training in awards and um, uh, union history, mostly for apprenticeship kids. So the first thing we do, we take them down the back and we show them all the union emblems uh, before we get onto the computer and have a look at laws, etc. And I tell them why uh, some of the unions adopted and still wear uh, the Eureka flag today. And I go through the start going through the normal spiel about the oath, standing by each other, uh, the militancy, um, the militant approach to uh, collective organising and taking on the ruling class to win concessions uh, through struggle. And I talked to him about the couple of years after the Eureka Stockade, the big rallies that were happening in Melbourne, well, straight after the Eureka Stockade, all the big workers' rallies that happened in Melbourne, and then and in the lead-up to the building workers at Melbourne University going on strike and demanding the eight-hour day and the eight-hour movement that came out of that. And I'm going through this normal spiel, and this kid at the back puts his hand up. And I'd already done a bit about workers getting shot and all that sort of stuff. And this kid puts his hand up and he says, yeah, I want to ask a suggestion. And he says, so why aren't you doing anything today? <laughs> well, I didn't tell him that was a very good question. <laughs> I put like all union, all union officials, I got a bit defensive and I tried to read out a list of all these things that we're doing today. And anyhow, after I kicked them all out, I had to think about it. And when you look around at the union struggles in, uh, in Palestine and uh, Malaysia, um, what's happening to union officials in South America, and you look at the self-determination struggles of the Tamils, the West Papuans, uh, the Palestinians, and you have a look around today of, of activism and collective struggle against the ruling class, and you can you compare it to the Australian union movement, where we're not really on par. We're, we're, we're up our game a bit at the moment, you might say, and um, I think we could be doing a hell of a lot more. Um, and uh, to, to deserve medals uh, of, of this nature and quality, we should be doing a hell of a lot more. And all I can do is, um, is pledge that wherever I wear uh, the Eureka flag on my sleeve, I'll um, campaign amongst the union movement to have the biggest and the most militant struggles that we can have. Because as we all know, to make any gains, you have to defeat uh, the powers of the They have to feel defeated, they have to offer concession um, before we make any wins or, or gains. So um, it's through that struggle that I hope to continue to contribute to and not to make the distinction between our union work and our brothers and sisters that are struggling in other walks of life. Because we are all one, uh, we are the majority, we are the 99%. Uh, we do own this planet, not the capitalists, and the sooner we take it back, the better the world will be. Thank you. And it was on November the 29th, 1854, that the 12,000 miners at the Monster Meeting swore the oath of allegiance to the Southern Cross. This year, that oath was reaffirmed on the very place the oath was sworn 160 years ago. We swear by the Southern Cross, we swear by the Southern Cross. We swear by the Southern Cross. To stand truly by each other. And fight. And fight. To defend our rights and liberties. To defend our rights and liberties.
are at the town hall in Ballarat where the flag, the Eureka flag, does not fly from the main flagpole. It never has in 160 years, but I'm joined by uh, veteran activist Graham Dunstan. Uh, what brings you to Ballarat today? Peacebus.com. I'm here because the Eureka Rebellion is something we've got to remember. This is the 160th anniversary of the breaking through of tyranny. The diggers took on the government. They took on tyrannous government, corrupt government. The rich, rich weren't paying taxes. Does that sound familiar? The courts were corrupt. The cops were corrupt. And they called for justice. And they stood together, swore an oath, and then were willing to defend it with their blood. They're my kind of people. That's my kind of Australia. So I'm here to remember their sacrifice and, and this keep street, them alive. In this street we stand under the, all the symbols of colonialism, the very ones who ordered the massacre 160 years ago, I mean. Queen Victoria stands opposite the entrance to the Town Hall. The Town Hall is a magnificent pile of Victorianist, you know, stone, sandstone and bluestone. And they can't ever bring themselves to fly the flag on a Eureka day. But they didn't bring them, so they couldn't bring themselves to honour the revolution. At the time, it was 50 years before there was any recognition of the, the, uh, the importance of the revolution, the rebellion. And then, right, they continued to be royalists. So when it's left to the British Ballarat City Council to organise an anniversary of the Aquarius, of the Aquarius, the Eureka Rebellion, right, all they can think of is redcoat reenactments. Yeah? That's the limit of their imagination. That was the photograph in the paper two days ago with the official program. That's what they think it's about. About redcoat soldiers firing off their muskets at the graveyard and raising the Union Jack with the mayor with his hand on his heart, <laughs> saluting it. And God each, almighty. Each year you burn an effigy. Uh, what's the correlation between the current day... And 160 years ago and the events that took place. Well, well back then, the, the tyrants were very clear. There was Governor Hoffman, you know, who was refusing to act on the advice from the people that the courts were corrupt in Ballarat, right? That the licence collection was like a fee to corruption. They were getting... The, the cops... Were, Victoria Police were only one year old, folks. They were getting a commission for busting people, right? Effectively, that's what the licensing were about. And then there was... Um, what was the, the commissioner? Redmond, Red, Ridley, I can't remember his name now. He was an absolute bastard. It was he who sicked the soldiers onto the diggers who bought their, burnt their licences. The, the response next day was take an armed party into the gravel fields. That was the, the, the diggings closest to the government camp and the friendliest. They were, the Welsh, they weren't up on their hind legs at all started firing into the diggers when, you know, it became a riot. And that's the beginning. That's where, you know, Peter Layla arises. He races to Bakery Hill. Where's the meeting? Where's the meeting? Carrying his gun. And he gets up on a stunt and he says, Liberty! Right? And then the people have a leader. And last of all, on Rank and File Radio today, we're going to hear from the convener of the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion Committee and 3CR's own Dr Joseph Toscano. And we're here on the 160th anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion uh, marching to the cemetery. I'm joined by 3CR's own uh, Dr Joe Toscano. Thanks for coming. Well, it's a pleasure to be on the program. A pleasure. Where are the rest of you? And... Uh, what event do we commemorate today? 
we, we commemorate the 160th anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion, when the men and women of Ballarat stood up to the British colonial authorities, the day when over 50 people were killed for defending their inalienable rights and liberties. We are here to mark that day and show our respect to those men who are buried in the old Ballarat Cemetery. And a few days before the massacre, the 12,000 diggers they gathered at Bakery Hill? Yes, on the 29th of, uh, 29th of uh, November 1854, the Ballarat Reform League, which was formed on the 11th of November 1854, held a monster meeting where the Southern Cross, that flag of Australian independence, was raised for the first time, where people for the first time swore the Eureka Oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. And it says four, uh, the four pillars to the Eureka story contained in that oath? Four pillars are internationalism, people from across the globe of all races, religions, creeds came to the Eureka Rebellion. Direct action, people took up arms to defend their inalienable rights and liberties. Direct democracy. People made decisions at these meetings and then elected or appointed delegate to carry out those decisions and solidarity. They understood that the only way they were going to win was by sticking together. And we've just seen a ceremony take place on Bakery Hill. Uh, what were those awards uh, for? The Eureka Australia Day medals. The Eureka Australia Day medals is for uh, the Eureka Australia Day medal is for activists who've donated decades of their time to promoting the public interest before corporate interest. Community activists, West Papuans, Indigenous activists, everybody. And the Eureka story isn't just a historical event. That struggle continues on today as we're seeing the... Uh... Well, the struggle continues today. That's why we are here. We are here to reclaim that spirit on behalf of the Australian people. And the tragedy is that this city we are marching in refuses to acknowledge its radical history while profiting from the Eureka legend. It is a tragedy of great proportions. And the West Papuan freedom fighters join us here today. Uh, what's the correlation between the story of the Eureka Rebellion and the West Papuan struggle? Well, both, both rebellions are about rebellions, about freedom, about independence. That's what it's about. It's about freedom and independence. It's about people taking action. And the symbolism is the symbolism of the Morning Star and the Southern Cross. The Morning Star and the Southern Cross. The Morning Star and the Southern Cross in the sky together. I'm just a little bit preoccupied with the police. The very same people who are responsible for the Eureka Massacre 160 years ago are attempting to stop us. Here we are, we're meeting with a line of the police now as we make our way up to the cemetery where those diggers are buried in a mass grave buried together the same way they fought and died 160 years ago. You're listening to Radio 3CR and I am Associate Professor in History, Claire Wright. Unchain my heart, unchain my heart. 
Do you know that in some parts of the world, people with mental illness are chained up and do not receive any help at all? Breaking the Chains is a new film investigating these seclusion and restraint practices in Indonesia. Come along to the launch on International Human Rights Day on Wednesday, 10th December. This free screening will be followed by a panel discussion, plus there will be special performances by Plan B Big Band and others. Come along from 4.30 till 9pm at Elizabeth Murdoch Theatre A, the University of Melbourne, Swanson Street, Carlton. For further info, email brainwaves at mifellowship.org or visit movie-ment.org. No booking is necessary. Free Free Pursum. Break the chains. And just let you to let you know that uh, there were major demonstrations yesterday uh, outside the um, uh, American U.S. consulate uh, in regards to the um, shooting death of. Uh, uh, Michael Brown in uh, America, but it's uh, expanding the whole notion of uh, the uh, un- the racist uh, connection between police and black uh, the black population in America. You may be aware that there's been major uh, demonstrations of solidarity for. Uh, ab- um, Oh, well, I was going to say Aboriginals because it's Aboriginal deaths in custody is also a flaming issue at the moment. And it's the same issue, really, what it, that's going on in America where the placards are saying black blacks, um, lives are, are important, things of this nature. A man was... Uh, a, there's video of a, a very, very big black man. He's very big, he was, uh, with two policemen beside him and uh, then there was the, one of the policemen does a chokehold, and this is the new piece of uh, devastating uh, sort of response to a death in uh, custody, a black death in custody in America, where this poor man was uh, died in the chokehold, and it was shown. It, it, they went to uh, the uh, grand jury, and again, the police officer apparently has no charges to to answer. Uh, it, from the footage, it was quite clear that uh, the man was such a big person that I would, I would, uh, I would say that the two police officers were just frightened of him because he wasn't actually doing anything. <laughs> so uh, obviously, being black in America is a bit of a life sentence. Uh, anyway, it is also another watching brief. But uh, let's listen to what uh, Kevin Healy's take on the week that was. Is <laughs> you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and of course, if you uh, miss out tonight, today, or in the future, you can always look us up on uh, 3cr.org.au and uh, listen to the podcast. A weak Solidarity Brecky team listener. When even when governments contemplate laws to help the terrenulous people, they carry on. Take this Western Trublawazi law before Parliament dealing with terrenulous heritage issues like those prehistoric rock carvings at Barra Peninsula, which the terrenulous people carry on about, just because the forces of progress need to eradicate a little bit of the prehistory in order to get at what's beneath the prehistory. In other words, these people have no concept of progress. 
Thanks to that, the new laws demand that if heritage sites are under threat, the minister responsible must consult with the caring resource companies, but has no obligation to consult with the terra nullius traditional owners, and they're carrying on about that. As if the minister responsible, I mean, there's the word, responsible, and the caring resource companies would not have the traditional owners and heritage values interests at heart. And why are the traditional owners locked out? Obviously, they've only got themselves to blame. If they'd been cooperative and agreed to small compromises like allowing the caring resource companies to destroy a little bit of the heritage, they could have still been in the room. For instance, the concerned caring for the Terranullius People Responsible Resource Corporation wanting to destroy the Barra prehistoric sites offered to move the rock carvings to somewhere else. And the bloody traditional owners objected. No sense of give and take. Why, they could have been moved to Sydney or Melbourne, somewhere civilised, where they could have been turned into an opportunity with some small royalties for the Terranullius people. And being Terranullius, their role is nullius. So governments and caring resource companies are just recognising reality by ignoring them. Got excited a couple of weeks ago, those US of elections, when reports said large swathes of the US of had gone red. Goodness, I thought I didn't even realise we had a chance, but sadly it was another example of the altruistic practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all expropriating not only our wealth, or more accurately non-wealth, but our vernacular. Radical, reform, and now red. Republicans under the bed. Probably for valid reasons, like ensuring the occupants are of the opposite sex to each other and not practising anything as long-haired commies sin against the dear baby Jesus as contraception. But consolation this week, as our very own state went red. Why, the new big supremo hoo-hoo is a member of the socialist left faction and don't we all admire the winners on election night? Well, we know that to get through the party machines and be in a position to become big, big supremo necessitates deep humility, complete lack of hubris. And so they all tell us how humble they feel at the decision of the people. It's always a lovely moment. But in case that socialist bit left, uh, socialist left bit worried you, OK, OK, in an interview just after he became the Socialist Party Big Supremo four years ago, he joined Julius Caesar, and thrice did he refuse, and San Pietro. Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Yes, just in case we missed it the first time, who who stressed three times that okay he was in a faction called, but most definitely he was not a socialist. We'd have to say he probably didn't need to tell us that. Despite that comforting assurance, Hoo Hoo got off to a dangerous start, running a serious risk of facing child neglect or even child abuse charges. Perhaps it was just the enthusiasm of the moment, the excitement of the humility, but we all saw it. He turned to his dear little children and thanked them for making me the person I am today. What's he got against his kids? They, they seem nice enough. But this was politics, so let's go to the critical political statement in that usual long, rambling, humble moment of glory. The people of Victoria, who, 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 who'd, have today said no to tired, negative policies. The people of Victoria have today said yes 
to God knows what. Well, well, no, to policy-free policies. The Socialist Party recognises that having a policy-free policy avoids the electorate being disappointed, disillusioned. This shows we are thinking only of the people of this great state. And if Hu Hu didn't really need to tell us thrice he was not a socialist, big-time corporate figure, multi-company director James McConkie, the workers, probably didn't need to stress to his corporate colleagues or us his assurance Monday. Business has nothing to fear from a socialist government. And just when we thought they were shaking in their boots... These practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all know our cherished democracy, our fragile democracy, hinges on democracy. They tell us, for instance, the true caring business class party government was elected democratically and so its budget policies to clean up the socialist mess, requiring a few sacrifices, particularly by those stupid enough not to vote for the caring business class party, must be passed. That those blocking those few sacrifices are opposing democracy, refusing to accept the democratic will of the people. Thus, similarly, within seconds of the obvious result in scarlet blood-red Victoria, these stalwarts of democracy, from the sundry chambers of profits to Ian No Revolution of the witch bank that used to be our bank, to Harold Mitch Held to viewers, guru of that most respectable of industries, advertising, were calling on the government to reconsider its pledge to rip up the East-West Link contract. Why the East-West Link would would boost Melbourne's transport efficiency, presumably the traffic jams, the congestion would be even more efficient than they are now. Uh, But the people voted democratically for that policy not to build the link. What's that got to do with it? We all know people can get democracy wrong. Look at Gaza, for Christ's sake. No, no, real democracy needs governments to make the difficult decisions. Promises must be reassessed in the cold light of day of reality. What, within seconds of the vote? Where the people have got it wrong, yes. Uh, But you say you believe in democracy. No one believes in democracy more than we do. So therein lies the problem with democracy, the the bloody people. We we need a selective franchise. Joining the democratic push, big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, says the federal grant to build public transport, which he converted into a federal grant to build road congestion, would not be transferred back to public transport. People voted democratically, knowing I will never fund public transport. I am simply fulfilling the democratic wishes of the Victorian people. Uh, Yes, what have you got against public transport? The word public doesn't help. Tiny said he agreed with the corporate altruists that governments have to make the difficult, unpopular decisions. And I'd know I'm the world champion when it comes to unpopular decisions. Tiny said the year started with two main aims, stop the boats and get the budget through. The stop bit worked. We've stopped the boats and they've stopped the budget. On a positive, the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats, scuttle them more. Lash son displayed his great dear baby Jesus values by getting dear little children, illegal, no proper papers, queue-jumping boat people, dear little children, out of the concentration camps and into limbo, unfortunately having to make a few trade-offs like writing True Blue Aussie out of humanity, leading the Socialist Party to criticise the policy.
We believe remaining part of humanity does not preclude us from inhumanity. They displayed their deep ideological difference. Unlike Scuttle them, not celebrating, but we'd like to think Minister for Education for Prophet Christopher Payne in there has learned a few lessons himself this year. <laughs> but doubt it, a dunce is a dunce is a dunce. Finally, after economic guru Joe Hackey, the workers, told us Monday the true blue Aussie economy was heading for great riches for all of us, thanks to the caring business class party, and then Wednesday told us it was a complete mess, thanks to the socialists, showing Joe's got the whole thing under control, one of the problems Wednesday seemed to be stagnant wages. What's the problem? That's easily fixed. Then again, Lord Rupert's economic guru Terry Pukan explained to us Thursday why the good times are over and therefore why even stagnant wages have to become more stagnant so we'll all be better off. But Terry and Joe and the great corporate figures didn't explain why they forgot to tell the lazy avaricious workers there were good times. Perhaps next time, listener, they'll tell the workers the time is right for wage increases and all sorts of better crippling conditions. Oh, and Santa Claus is coming to town. Good morning. Buy a ticket in the 3CR raffle. You could be in the running to win a luxurious weekend camping experience in a fancy bell tent for two. Generously donated by Happy Glamper. They do all the work so that you have just to turn up, relax and enjoy. Check out happyglamper.com.au for more information. Drop into the station during business hours or call us on 9419 Happy Glamper is a 3CR supporter. And you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And thank you very much for your company. Even though it's cool and wet outside, I'm sure anybody who's listening is under their doona or sipping a coffee, coffee or tea. Uh, and uh, as Kevin uh, Healy tells us about the result of the Victorian election, which was, of course, Labor getting a majority, which was uh, a, almost a relatively unheard of thing in recent elections in Victoria, a clear majority of uh, at least 47 seats. Uh, a very interesting um, outcome for the Upper House, uh, a whole raft of uh, minor parties, including the first uh, member of the sex party to uh, enter into Victorian politics. And you might remember quite a while ago, Bill, um, dear departed Bill, uh, did an interview with that particular winner of that seat. He was on the money. Good old Bill was often on the money. But I caught up with uh, Andrew Kelly, who is a long-term resistor of the South, uh, the uh, East-West Link, and um, he had, and we had a bit of a chat about. Uh, going over the embers of uh, the result of the election and what it means in relation to the East-West Link. Andrew Kelly. Before the election was uh, called on Saturday, on the week before, the picket had actually started again, hadn't it, down at Bren Road near the Hockey Centre at Royal Park because 
LMA had started to do some exploratory drilling again, hadn't they? Yes, except I probably wouldn't, uh, not uh, linking Melbourne Authority, but um, East-West Connect. Ah, so they've morphed. Uh, no, I don't think morphed is the correct word. <laughs> they had been uh, supplanted, I suppose, so that the uh, uh, East-West Connect is the name of the consortium that was, uh, the, the, they're the successful uh, tenderers who were given the uh, the prize of being the ones to uh, implement the project. Yeah, so uh, in fact uh, everybody was alert to potential going ahead before the election, but now that the election result has been called, what's the general attitude to uh, the future of the East-West Link amongst uh, the picketers? Uh, well, I think everyone is pretty certain that uh, the East-West Link is not going ahead, uh, at least for the time being. You know, it may... Uh, I don't think people are completely confident that the idea is dead forever, but uh, I think it would be uh, um, you know, impossible for it to be built soon, I suppose. I was quite fascinated on Saturday night uh, after the result came out. I was watching Sky News and there was the, the commenta- commentators that they had there were so amazed at the result that they started to talk over each other. And the key issue that they were most incensed about appeared to be the development of the East-West Link. It seemed to have been a pivotal element in Liberal government and big business cooperation. That They actually believed that people power and all the negative notions against the East-West Link and the need for the positive notions for the need for public transport couldn't possibly be supplanted. Did you get that reading from those kind of attitudes that were being expressed on that night? Uh, I don't know, really. I mean, I um, you know, I suppose it was just very striking that uh, the East-West Link was really the clearest divide uh, between the, the two sides in the... Uh, uh, in the election, with Tony Abbott uh, referring it to a, uh, referring to it as a referendum, and then uh, uh, Daniel Andrews talking about giving Victorians a, a choice. Do you feel vindicated? That's the real question uh, for the amount of work that people have put in to make it clear that the people need to be listened to. Oh, absolutely, yes, yes. I think uh, I think everyone uh, feels that. Um, I mean, I understand that there's uh, you know there's always been people who think that the East-West Link is, uh, is a good idea. Just, uh, you know, they're stuck in traffic and uh, they have a notion that if you widen the road, it will be better. Um, and I can understand the way those, those people think. But there is, we're really at the, on the cusp of a, a change in thinking. And people, you know, more and more people, I think, understand that adding more roads is, uh, is really a doomed enterprise, or at least adding giant uh, mega roads of this kind. Because we know that there was a, um, a government um, productivity report which they uh, commissioned and then uh, tried to bury uh, and apparently that report indicates that on average with uh, these uh, gigantic kinds of projects a sort of average return is something like one to one in terms of uh, benefit in the benefit cost ratio but when you're doing small scale road projects uh, the benefit is three times the cost so it's really these giant arterial intra-city 
uh, roads are just a, a losing proposition. It's really just a snake chasing its tail. And, and I think, you know, ultimately the electorate is coming around to, to see that. It's, you know, governments and large organizations uh, um, like, you know, Vic Roads and, uh, and the financial institutions and so on that are, that are lagging really. But, you know, people are coming to realize so it's as we've said in previous interviews that it's actually more complex the planning of a city for for liv- livability. Yes, absolutely. I know that uh, people are being careful about saying that you know it's a done deal now. I know that there's been uh, elation amongst people whose houses were being um, marked for demolition, that sort of thing. Now, the Labor government in Victoria has now said that it potentially will not contest, the will not defend the action in the Supreme Court taken by Moreland Council and Yarra Council. Is that correct? I haven't heard anything expressly today, but that was, that's been uh, a position that they um, put forward uh, quite a long time ago. So if it's being confirmed today, that's, uh, um, that's, that's good news. I mean, I don't think of that as being... A decisive moment, you know, and it may well actually be that the court case is no longer uh, going to be pivotal, that the uh, government will reach an accommodation with the consortium. You know, I suppose a a large component of the consortium is uh, construction firms that uh, wish to do business with uh, Labor governments in this state and and, uh, around the country, and they, they don't want to go, you know, on in a poisonous relationship. And, you know, I think people can see that the contracts were signed under very strange circumstances to be, you know, right before the election when there were court cases pending. And, uh, you know, the kind of figures that uh, the treasurer, former treasurer Michael O'Brien was tossing around of uh, $1.1 billion, really they're kind of vast sums for, you know, one way to put it is it's a billion dollars for, for eight weeks work. You know, they, those seem to be highly unreasonable uh, numbers. And it looks uh, as if there's going to be a a, a negotiated settlement. There is, in the Age article discussing this, there's a report that Capella Capital, a financial institution, wants to stick to the letter of the contract, um, but I suppose they're one element in the, uh, in the consortium and uh, some, some kind of settlement will be, uh, will be reached. In a sense, this is a, a David and Goliath episode in the state of Victoria's political history. Uh, yes, I think that's the case. Now, I've um, spoken to people who are involved in actions around a similar kind of project in Sydney. Yes. And uh, they actually were very relieved about uh, the result in Victoria. Uh, yes, yeah. Well, I hope... I mean, the two projects in Melbourne and, and Sydney are very similar to each other and happening uh, almost at the same time. I mean, they're a, a little bit behind us. And they're both, of course, uh, West Connects, Connects is, you know, it too has Tony Abbott as its godfather. Uh, and uh, he's looking pretty uncomfortable uh, out of this uh, whole episode. That's kind of remarkable thing of him claiming or announcing that uh, the election is a, uh, that the Victorian election was going to be a referendum on the East-West Link. And then as soon as uh, his position is lost, he turns around and says he's going to do everything in his power to see that the road is built. So, so, you know, he has done many rapid changes of position around things like the uh, funding of the ABC, but I can't think of anyone that's happened so quickly, you know, just in a matter of a couple of days. It's as if he is, uh, uh, you know, as if he has no knowledge of what he said just a couple of days, uh, a couple of days before. And I, I, think, I think this is going to be a big wound for him. And so I, uh, I, I hope actually that 
the defeat of the East-West Link in Melbourne will also uh, be uh, a big aid to the defeat of the similar project in Sydney. Do you have any any reflections on the public-private partnerships that are so espoused by governments, not just the Liberal government but the previous Labor governments, when you think that, uh, one, there was uh, a great deal of effort and subterfuge regarding the business plan for the East-West Link and uh, many of the uh, analysis of it done by independent experts were that it, we really weren't going to get our money's worth, the public were not going to get their money's worth. But that didn't mean that private uh, operators weren't going to get their profits out of it. Do you think it brings into question this notion of public-private partnerships? Yes, absolutely. And, and I suppose uh, over the coming week or so, we, uh, we look forward to seeing the release uh, by the new government. I mean, they're announcing that they're releasing a, uh, a great quantity of documents from the project. And so that, I think, will you know, expose the project to uh, a whole new level of uh, scrutiny. And if, you know, if also, of course, the, the, those documents have been sought by the uh, cases in the Supreme Court, which are which are still running. But, um, you know, the the East-West Link has hidden from scrutiny uh, throughout its whole time. And, uh, um, you know, I think, you know, one of the functions of the the picketing and of the community campaign in general was just to regi- to direct remorseless attention onto the, uh, uh, onto the project. And because it makes such poor sense uh, when you look at it closely, that, you know, that has been uh, lethal attention and the exposure of these documents is going to make that only uh, clearer. And yes, when it comes to public-private partnerships, and in particular to availability public-private partnerships, that is the version where all of the risk falls on the taxpayer and none of the risk falls, or very little of the risk falls, on the people who are carrying out the work. Uh, I mean, I think, I I hope that uh, as a nation we just come to see these for the pernicious arrangements uh, that they are. And, you know, in the beginning when they first, you know, one of the first arguments uh, and incentives towards having public-private partnerships is that the risk is shared. But that when you when you move to this version, that's not happening at all. It's a strange idea when you, when you consider that they lord the concept of capitalism as being the only method. And you, they often say that uh, people who run businesses should be given a lot of latitude because they take the risk. Yes. Yeah, it just seems like a laughable concept. And then the other side of it is too that uh, you know it brings in this uh, this the notion of commercial and confidence. And so what happens is that government, which should be about uh, transparency and openness and genuine consultation, and gets, representing the and people. representing yeah, gets infiltrated by. Um, by uh, you know secrecy and uh, and and evasion, uh, all around claims that uh, you know things are commercial and confidence, and that's really uh, corrosive. I mean, I can understand that um, you know governments are supposed to be open, but they have a natural incentive, many natural incentives towards you know keeping information under control. Uh, but the um, commercial and confidence um, provisions in these uh, in these projects is. Uh, What's well, anti-democratic? Yeah, it's anti-democratic, and it. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, although it can't be said that it was illegal, or even corrupt, the uh, we have to wait and see exactly for that. <laughs> but I mean, I suppose what you have is, uh, you know, the government makes the laws, so it makes laws and then operates uh, uh, within them. So you can have forms of 
of behavior which are virtually corrupt, but they're legal because laws have been made in order to facilitate that behavior. Well, one of the things that was most striking leading up to the election was the vainglorious, I say vainglorious behavior of Lend-Lease taking certain public servants to an expensive dinner in Melbourne to celebrate the signing of the contracts. Have you got any reflections on that? It's a small thing, really, but uh, it has uh, it has a lot of symbolic weight to it. So it's, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter what someone eats on a particular day, but um, and you know the the amounts of money involved are relatively small in in comparison to uh, you know the vast river of money which would, which would have flowed through this project um, out of the public coffers. But uh, at the same time, it's uh, you know it's kind of it's revealing and uh, and deeply unfortunate that they would uh, uh, that they would do that. And similarly, that you know there were. Um, uh, public servants and people involved in the uh, project who went to uh, liberal fundraising functions. It's the other side of uh, other side of that. It's quite disturbing, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little disturbing. Yeah, I feel that there's this general impression of how our system operates, where public servants are people who need to be uh, separate from the actual political argy-bargy and that uh, they need to be kind of clean skins in relation to the information that they collect and deliver to their political masters. Yes, absolutely. I, I just think that uh, we have a general belief, we feel um, that uh, there are systems that checks and balances and uh, systems that are in place, uh, but they're not being used in a sense. Well, does do you think that uh, the East West Link situation actually exposes some weaknesses in our system? Yes, I, I guess it does. But because any system depends on the culture that uh, that uh, lives uh, lives within it, and um, but you know, I think this is also a very promising moment. There's a, a nice comment by uh, Paul Mees. I forget actually who he's quoting, but he, he was quoting a study about the development of transport systems in in Europe. And this author was saying that you can really only get thoroughgoing change when there is uh, crisis and conflict, and uh, we certainly have had. Uh, have have had that. There's a long road to go, so to speak. And uh, there's also, I mean, just in the short term, there are still things that are going. There are lawsuits that are running. And as I, as we mentioned before, there are those documents that will be released. The Auditor General is in the process of doing an audit? Yes, that's, that's, there's that as well. So, but, you know, it will be interesting over the next four years to, uh, to see if we can begin to have, uh, to have a genuine change in the way that uh, infrastructure is implemented in Victoria. So the Labor Party has been talking about setting up Infrastructure Victoria, like Infrastructure uh, Australia. But, you know, then, too, those institutions are only as strong as the, uh, as the culture that drives them. And so... Uh, I mean, it's in- interesting because uh, some people have forgotten that in a point that uh, was brought forward by the people who protested against uh, East West Link, that in, in uh, the... Uh, infrastructure arrangements that from federal level in regards to funding that East West Link was actually uh, a mere footnote on their reports that in actual fact public service infrastructure was uh, at the top of the list 
for federal funding. Uh, public transport. Public transport, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the Metro Rail Tunnel was well ahead in terms of, it was shovel-ready, whereas uh, East-West Link was, uh, I forget the term, uh, was, uh, promising or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, down the list, yeah. Which, uh, which speaks to the point that you're making, that it depends on the political readiness. Yes, and so I think, you know, it, we also, you know, I've seen a lot of community engagement around uh, public transport or transport, uh, in in general, and so I think that needs to uh, needs to continue. People need to be uh, involved in um, in you know basically in the kind of city that they want to that they want to live in. But it's not just that; it's the country too, the Victorian countryside. There was actually a sort of an outpouring of uh, annoyance from uh, people from the country who want their trains back. Yes, yes. Yeah, there's the uh, Rail Revival uh, Alliance. And when you go into the um, train station at uh, Castle Main in the sort of little uh, cafeteria shop area, um, sitting on a chair, there's this huge uh, board with a map of the old uh, rail system, really just, you know, covering, uh, you know, a very extensive network across uh, all of Victoria. And you just think about, you know, the number of people who were employed in that uh, in that system, and uh, you know how it linked all of Victoria together. And, um, unfortunately, neither of the major parties are committing to uh, uh, to to reviving that. But I think it's really, uh, you know, it was very short sighted to to decommission that system. Well, it goes to the issue of small governments, which are the flavour of uh, the last two decades. Yes, in Victoria, the problem of structural in- unemployment. And structural un- unemployment, I mean, in the sense that uh, the government has actually willfully undermined the various systems that gave people employment. Well, one of the uh, persistent arguments for the East-West Link was the number of jobs that it was supposed to uh, p- provide. You know, first they talked about 3,000 and then they were talking about 7,000. And then I suppose it became part of the 200,000 jobs that the uh, last government was uh, was uh, was was talking about, and I think you know one of the problems there is that um, just because something provides a job is not an argument for doing it, right? So the the work has to be of value, and then you have the benefit of uh, of, of people doing it. So you can't just uh, you can't use the fact that someone's going to get a job as an argument to do something. First, you have to decide, you know, whether that thing is uh, of value in itself. When it comes to public transport, giving pr- public transport its rightful place within the system of, uh, of, of transport as a whole. I mean, that's both a good in itself and... Uh, and it's continuous employment. And it's continuous employment. So it means that you've got a much larger number of people performing a much larger variety of tasks and many more of those tasks uh, go on and on. Um, whereas, uh, you know, the construction jobs for a project like the East West Link is relatively uh, relatively short term uh, many of them actually would have come from overseas as we as we know yeah exactly because it uh, then is a much bigger argument about uh, government policy and their direction i've spoken to a variety of people and i suppose it's a straw poll in a sense regarding uh, reactions to the relief that some people are feeling that uh, one that the labor party won and mm. that uh, the east west link is now less likely to occur and uh, they often say oh yes 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 and then they go uh, yes but um they don't trust that uh, the, they don't trust the happiness they don't think that uh, anything that where people push 
to make it happen uh, will really be sustainable, that big business and governments don't actually listen to what people actually want. They feel nervous about it. Do you think that that's being overly negative? Well, I guess each person has to make up their, their own mind. But, you know, for me, I think it's absolutely clear that it's not going ahead in the, in the short term. So it just, that just seems inconceivable to me that uh, the current government can turn around and, uh, and build it at this point, you know. And effectively what they would have to do to do that would be to take on the mantle of Tony Abbott. So, you know, Tony Abbott actually has been a kind of godsend uh, to, to this, to this uh, uh, project. I mean, you know, it's sort of... How many feet can he put in his mouth? Yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah. Are you happy? You're sleepy. Yes, I am very, very sleepy. Well, it's, um, you know, even just ending this process is rather rather complicated and there's still uh, a, a lot of things uh, uh, to do. I think I, I'm still feeling kind of agitated, actually. But, it's a bit uh, like a, um, a, a fire. You've still got to sit there and watch for the embers. Well, you know, there's a lot of things unfolding and it's, uh, I, I, I suppose one thing that st- struck me all along is that it's been a very interesting process, right? So there's just, uh, um, you know, a lot of things are, are in play and with the, the you know, if, if um, the election had gone the other way, I just don't know how. <laughs> how it's funny that should, would be such a disaster. Oh, it's really, funny you should say so, that, Andrew. I, all, yeah. all night, all day and night, I refused to find out how it had gone until... It was uh, too far gone. Well, it was very striking, actually, that it uh, it was announced so rapidly. The result was so clear, so uh, so early. It was such a. I mean, it was a, it was a giant relief. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was my chat with Andrew Kelly, a uh, long term East West picketer. And uh, just to let you know that uh, the East West Link picketers are having a celebration next Saturday at 2pm in Westgar Street in Fitzroy. That was the site of one of the most tumultuous days of uh, violence during the East-West Bigot. So that's Saturday the 13th of December at 2pm Westgar Street in Fitzroy. Join the celebrations. Uh, This is uh, the end of Solidarity Breakfast this week and uh, we'll... uh, we should uh, be in my, uh, keep in mind that uh, not only is uh, federal parliament uh, uh, finished for the year as they go off on their Christmas break, but also there's word out that uh, there's apparently going to be a reshuffle of the government's uh, ministries and ministers. Uh, there's also an, a persistent uh, discussion about, around a leadership challenge coming with the notion that uh, perhaps we can have a diminutive Thatcher in the uh, in the uh, guise of Julie Bishop. Uh, apparently her popularity has been rising. Uh, the other thing of interest is the word is that uh, now Richard Wynne, who is returned as the... Uh, Minister, uh, the Labor uh, candidate for um, Richmond, uh, that uh, his office, and he's also been given the portfolio of planning in the next uh, in this government. Uh, but uh, now the uh, the phones are ringing hot in his office around uh, the uh, broken lives that have been caused by. Uh, Matthew Guy's previous handling of that particular portfolio. So that's a watching brief. We'll go out with uh, These Machines Cut Razor Wire 
by Les Thomas, and we're awaiting the wondrous tones of uh, Asia-Pacific currents. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.